Welcome to the At The Table podcast, a production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. On this podcast, we aim to explore how church leaders can more effectively understand and utilize the voices of young single adults in their words and stakes. You'll hear from experienced church leaders and young single adults about best practices, inspiring stories, and encouraging methods to help us all follow Jesus Christ together. My name is Cami Castrillon. I'm originally from Colombia. I was born and raised there, and I moved to the United States when I was 16. I moved to the big city of New York, and that's where I joined the church. And then soon after, I served my mission in Riverside, California. Then after my mission, I moved to Utah, and I've been here ever since. I love dancing, especially salsa, hiking, baking, and I am thrilled to be part of this amazing podcast at the table. I'm Jared Pearson, and I have the pleasure to be a, a co-host on the At The Table podcast. I'm currently in Provo, Utah, but I was born and raised in Livermore, California, right outside San Francisco, California. I ended up serving my mission in New Hampshire, uh, the New Hampshire-Manchester mission. And some of my favorite things are playing pickleball, tennis, or staying inside, playing some board games, or reading books as well. And I'm just really excited to be part of this. Thank you for being here today, Sheldon and Sochil. We're so happy to have you here um, and to hear from your experiences, hear your insights. And um, we want our listeners to get to know you too. So why don't you go ahead and introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about you and your story. So I'm here to speak about my mental health journey. I'm a little nervous because it's usually easier for me to write out my experience. I think this will probably be my first time outside of therapy. I'm going to be sharing my my journey, my whole journey with someone else. So I hope that's able to help other people as well. I'm Sheldon. I, my, my whole life professionally, I think, has revolved around people, uh, whether that's as a professional therapist or or building products or programs. It's always kind of trying to strengthen and help people. Um, especially in situations where they may have emotional or, or mental health needs and, and the things we could do to support them and to learn from them. So I'm a licensed therapist um, and I received my doctorate degree at Arizona State in healthcare solutions. And it's just led me into a space where I, I love trying to figure out the things that are heavy for us as, as human beings, and then um, whether it's through private practice therapy or how to strengthen a community, just how to get stronger together. So both of you have had kind of different perspectives on mental health and YSAs and people in general and like what kind of struggles go people go through. And we're trying to like demystify what happens behind the scenes. And so to you being a YSA, so you've experienced things yourself and I'm sure Sheldon, you've seen a lot of things in your profession and other experiences as well. And you've both kind of seen the sides of mental health and like what it can do for you. And I just would like to get a quick rundown on both of your experiences and what you've seen in your lives um, with mental health and how that's affected you. I've battled like depression and OCD for a long time since I was 14. Thing was, my family at the time did not believe that depression, mental health stuff existed. They always denied it. They're like, no, 
so when I recognized I was like depressed, I couldn't feel anything inside. My mom basically told me to buck it up and just stop feeling that way. And so it was really hard for me from middle school to high school. It's like having to battle my own demons inside my head, thinking that it's not real. That's not true. It, it really hit my self-esteem a lot. And when I went to college, I was able to like put on the back burner for a bit. But once I got closer to my graduation date, it, the barrier I had built just broke and everything spilled out. I remember just for like weeks, I was like, things aren't feeling positive. I'm not feeling motivated. I'm not sure what's wrong. Everything's going right in life. And then I remember one day as I'm leaving campus, I have to take this ramp up to go, to go over a bridge over the road to get to my car. And I remember like imagining like someone could just fall off that wall and hit the road below. And as I was going over the bridge, I broke down because at that moment I realized it was me. I wanted to throw myself off that wall. And so I just, I cried right there, watching the cars go by under me. And that's when I knew I needed help. I had these thoughts before, but I knew this time I would actually do it. So I reached out to my counselor at my college. He dropped everything he was doing. He came and he was able to get me to the school therapist as soon as he could. And I'm forever grateful for that. They were able to help me with one part of my mental health. But there were limitations with that too. They weren't able to get me medication as quickly. I was falling behind my classes. It was like all the stress is just mounting on top of each other. It's my graduation day, it came closer. And as Christmas went by, that was like the worst Christmas I ever had. Like I'm trying to focus on the positive. I'm trying like, oh, I'm here with my family. We're like watching movies together and things. But honestly, inside, I was having so many negative thoughts that I'm worthless. I'm not a good person. I don't deserve to be here. And I remember just those thoughts just growing and growing, just getting bigger and bigger as each week went by. And I eventually had to stop seeing that therapist at my school because he thought we were getting better. But it was at that time when one day I remember that like there was no bridges near where I lived. I was following all his advice, like to not be alone, to not do anything that could risk my safety because I had made a safety plan with him. But it, the, the dark thoughts in my head just took over and I attempted suicide. I did one night and then the next morning my classes were suddenly shifted online so I didn't have to go in person. My family had left for, for work and for their schools and stuff like that so I was home alone and I remember I tried again and I knew that I was like I need to call someone. So I called my parents because they were the closest ones and I remember they just rushed me to the to the mental health hospital and, they, and I was admitted immediately. And I stayed in the hospital for a week, seeing multiple therapists every day, attending hours long therapies every day as they were trying to figure out what was going on and how they could help me. I remember in that hospital, 
that first night was so hard. I, I was like crying. I was wandering around. My body was just shaking from anxiety and everything. I wasn't sure how I was going to last the night. And I remember just looking out the window. This hospital was like, like upwards in the hills of the mountain. So I could see the whole valley down below. I could see all the lights. And I was like, I can imagine what each one of my friends are doing. I can imagine what my family's doing right now. And I'm like, I am just up here, stuck in this hospital. And I remember it was so hard. I was missing everyone. I was like, I want to be with them. I want to have fun. But at the same time, I still kept having suicidal thoughts. And so I was, I was forced, I was locked in the mental health institute for my own safety. And I didn't like it. It was really hard to get through those days. But the turning point for me there was I was, so my original doctors and therapists that were seeing me, they didn't work on the weekends and I happened to stay over a weekend. So they had a different psychiatrist watch me over the weekend. And I remember for our, the daily check-in they do every day, I had to share with him like my backstory, why I attempted suicide, things like that. And so, and he happened to be an LDS member. And so he, to me, that came as kind of a shock because I didn't have much experience with therapists. But at the same time, a lot of the therapists in that hospital, they weren't LDS. A lot of the doctors weren't. And so for me to hear that from him, it really shook me. And I didn't know what to think of it. So I just shrugged it aside. And then I remember the next day, a Sunday, he didn't come in for any of the patients. I think Sunday was like just some normal rest day. So they just did like less therapy groups because not a lot of employees were there. But I remember he came in and I noticed that he wasn't going to any of the other patients. And he came directly to me. He pulled me aside and he told me what I had suspected all along. But I just couldn't get validation from anyone. But then he told me, you have severe OCD. And for me, that was finally like, the validation I needed that I was not going crazy, that I was not making all this up, that all these thoughts in my head, all these doubts of my experiences, my memories, everything that had to do with my self-esteem, it wasn't me. It was an illness. And for me, that was like the changing point that it was, I was at the very bottom of this ditch. But to hear that from him, after sharing all my experiences where it made me think I was a bad person and such, and he knowing my beliefs and I knowing his, it just brought me so much like validation that this is real. He believes me and he's going to help me get back up. One, going to have to make those steps to get out of that ditch. He can provide a ladder, but I'm going to need the energy to get up that ladder. <laughs> and so that was the start of my recovery journey, which was just as hard as the beginning. Um, so I remember I got out of the hospital a week later and I, there, I had a hard time in school. I had to, I was doing a lot of capstone classes for my for my bachelor's, I was a team leader in several internship classes and stuff. 
And I basically had to give up those responsibilities and give them to my classmates so I could recover. All my medications, they were giving me so many side effects that I would get out of class so quickly to go to the bathroom or to avoid making a scene. And I remember trying to find a new therapist because I had to try several when I went out of the hospital and none of them were working for me. None of them clicked for me. They're like, every time I try to do something new with a therapist, they each sent me in a different direction. And to me, I felt like this is not what I need. I need something else. And so during that time, I was just trying to make it through another day, just try to follow my doctor's orders to make sure I was around someone the whole time, whether I was out in church, at school, at home. I was always with someone those first few months. And it was a good thing because sometimes I would get anxiety attacks so severe that I pass out afterwards. I just instantly fall asleep and I'm there sleeping for who knows how long. And it was really hard on me. I'm just, I'm so tired. I couldn't go do the things I love to do because my body couldn't handle it. But I remember I was on Instagram and I, it was like the 31st of May. It was like the very end of May. And I saw this random post that showed up in my feed that it was Mental Health Awareness Month. And I was like, it's been several months since I've gotten out of the hospital. Um, I mean, I like to share my experiences with people especially with my friends, because I feel that's where the real connection comes from with others is when you show like parts of yourself, of your true self, not the picture perfect images or the fakeness that we sometimes create on social media. And so I just decided like on a whim before I could doubt myself, I just shared a little bit that I was a suicide attempt survivor that a lot of us are fighting things within our heads that a lot of us don't get the validation we need, don't get the help we need because sometimes the people closest to us don't give it because they don't know about it. And that was the gateway that opened me to being able to change this pain, to change this horrible burden I had into an opportunity to be a leader in a different way, to help lead others that were struggling with their own mental health, that had nowhere to go. And I was there to help guide their way because I had paved the way for them. Um, Sochil, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I admire you and I'm, I'm so happy that you're here to be able to lift other people's burdens because um, it, it feels like a burden. Um, I am also YSA and I've also struggled with mental health and depression. And I know how heavy that burden feels. Um, and I can also relate to being able to um, identify now certain things in people and I'm like, maybe this person is struggling with something, but maybe they're not opening up like I wasn't before, 
or like how you felt. Um, and I'm grateful that we've had these experiences to be able to see um, other YSAs and other people in general um, and, and reach out and help. Have you, and in you, Sheldon, too, have you noticed that it is something very common within the YSA community? Well, for me, as I started opening up, like, I would just share, like, how I felt with my depression. Well, this is after, like, I was finally able on the right amount of medication. I was finally, I found the right therapist. And I was feeling much better. I didn't feel like I was in this deep whirlwind. I was finally, like, on top of the wave. I was like, okay, I'm able to get through this. So I remember that I would often share, like, just, like, mental health tips. I became a suicide prevention ambassador for the Live on Utah Coalition. So I learned, I was trained on the warning signs that uh, that someone needs help, that someone's going through a difficult mental health struggle or at the most extreme that they are becoming suicidal. And I remember those skills have helped me help so many members in my ward. So I know in a lot of cultures, men are, are told to be strong, to not show weaknesses and everything. But I have found out that it is always men, my friends, even some that I haven't seen since high school. They are the ones coming to me asking, you've gone through depression. You know what this is. Can you help me? And I remember just being there, being their listening ear, just listening to them, just hearing all their pains, all their demons just hearing everything that they feel wrong about themselves and being like, I know how that is. And I know exactly where you need to go so you don't have to live with it anymore. I remember I've had to help several of them either lead them to a bishop or I even had someone who wasn't of our religion and he was sharing me his pains. And I told him, your workplace most likely has access to therapists and such. And I was just encouraging him to go to it. And I remember several months later, I decided to catch up with him, see how he was doing. And he actually went, he had gone to the therapist at his work and he was doing so much better. And so I feel that there are a lot of YSAs that struggle with mental health and they're really reluctant to go to a leader about it. Like I had a friend that he didn't want to go to a leader he told me, it's like, no, I'd rather not. After he said yes, he changed his mind. But I knew, like, seeing him, I knew him before and after his mental health, like, started going down. I knew I had to reach out to our elders quorum president. And I reached out to him and I told him, you guys need to help this guy. You need to do this, this, and this. Because he's going exactly what I went through. And so that's what they did. They made sure to be with him. They were able to convince him to go to the bishop, I think, because they, they told me they had set up a meeting. And now, several months later, he's looking so much happier. He's enjoying his life. He's enjoying being with his girlfriend. And the one thing I've noticed that he's gotten better is that he offers me support. When on the days I feel depressed, he's like, hey, we can just go and sit on the bench outside and I'll just listen to you. And that's when I knew that he was definitely getting better because he was able to lift someone else's burden. 
Sheldon, where, what have you seen in the context of YSA as you're hearing Sochi's story over here? And in your experience, what have you seen along the YSA community? Well, one thing I would mention, a few things that are important to remember, there's many factors that contribute to our mental and emotional wellness. And there's not a simple answer. These are complex uh, situations. And so we should first not try to offer very simple solutions to life's complex, right? Um, is it common uh, in 2023? Yes, um, it, it is. That's a little difficult to pull apart too. Is it that we're getting better at recognizing it, that we're more aware of it, that we can see it? There's a lot of uh, complexity in recognizing what that means. But regardless, the person going through it, um, it's, it's, it's real. Um, we can reduce stigma. That is something that we can do. And we can do it by listening, by being open, having conversations, offering support. If someone is in a crisis, I, I use a little acronym to help me remember. If someone's in a crisis, that can feel like a really heavy burden to carry. So here's what I think a YSA might want to know. Um, if you can remember the acronym ACT, so ASK. Asking someone directly if they're going to harm themselves does not increase the likelihood that they will. It is, it is a kind and a loving thing to say, I'm worried about you. Are you thinking of hurting yourself? Most of the time, they'll be pretty honest with you and share with you where they're at. Um, the second letter, care, you should take very serious what they say. Um, I've had YSAs ask me before, well, what if, what if they're not real serious? I always reflect and reframe back to them and kind of say, uh, someone uh, who's serious about harming themselves or serious enough to say that they're going to, you don't need to be a filter that, because that's, that's serious. Either It's serious if they mention those things. And then tell, tell someone that is in a position to help. That doesn't mean gossip. That doesn't mean that now it's the next item on the ward council agenda necessarily. But you tell someone who's in a position to help. That could be a crisis line. That could be a bishop. That could be... Uh, a roommate. I mean, there's a lot of people you can tell, but it needs to be someone who's in a position to help. Um, if I could, I, I, I would share this as well. In the New Testament, there's a scripture that has stuck out to me that has just kind of guided a lot of my career. Um, Jesus's disciples are with him and it's 33-ish A.D., and they ask him a question that sounds absurd today. They said, uh, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he be born blind? I mean, that sounds absurd in 2023, that they associated blindness with sin. But I've noticed as we reduce stigma with mental health and mental illness, uh, we sometimes unintentionally and, and hurtfully ask some similar questions. Who messed up? Who's wrong? Was it the way they were raised? Is it them? 
Like, what is the, the, the problem to fix? I think Jesus' answer then applies just as much today as it did then, right? When he said, Jesus answered them and, and said, neither this man nor his parents have sinned, uh, but the glory of God may be made manifest in him. And so it's just this beautiful teaching of him helping them understand, don't associate this with sin. Um, in a faith community, a faith setting, it's a very common place for someone to share about uh, challenges that they're experiencing emotionally or, or mentally. And I think we have an obligation to, to do all that we can to support, to bear one another's burdens, to mourn with those that mourn when we, when we meet together. Thank you for sharing that. Um, as I hear you talk, I um, hear both of you talk. I am wondering if we as YSAs are trying to maybe be more open to share what we're feeling, what we're struggling with, but if we're having a hard time finding that YSA peer, or even like Sochil said, like we don't feel comfortable talking to an older leader. Um, I'm wondering how or what would you tell YSAs and older leaders? Um, Sheldon, you, you mentioned that it might be that we're recognizing um, mental health more now than, than we did before. And so it might be a little harder for people from like an older generation to understand mental health. So I guess my question is, what would you tell Sochil YSA and Sheldon, older leaders, how can we help them to be more open and, and be a source of, you can come to me and you can share? It, it, it does make sense. I want to share uh, a pet peeve that I have. Is that okay? A pet peeve that I have is the the tone of kids these days or YSAs these days. I'm going to tell you why. Um, the founding fathers thought that their children were going to mess it all up. I think there's a temptation for the older generation to look at the rising generation with a critical eye and think, oh, we handled it better. Um, I don't believe that. I just want to be like very clear. I, I, I don't believe that. When I grew up, um, my leaders, I think, were convinced that MTV was going to ruin my generation. There wouldn't be one of us that would even be a functional adult at this point, right? Um, there's a temptation to do that, to look and to say, oh, why don't they toughen up? Uh, I would say challenges might be different across generations, um, but it does not show uh, weakness, it does not show that uh, they're just not as good as their generation. So for the adult leaders, think back when, you know, a few years, there were challenges that they faced that felt overwhelming at the time. Um, we, we don't need to be critical of who had it worse or in my day. I don't think that's helpful in any way. I think the YSAs are the greatest young single adults who have ever been on the earth. And they need support too. 
And so I would say leaders don't need to cast uh, judgment on, on, on character. Um, mental illness is not a character defect in, in any way. And if there was one message I would say to, to give to leaders, focusing, helping someone focus on growth will always be healthier than obsessing about shortcomings. I think leaders have, they're in a role to do that. They can help people focus on growth and looking forward and walking the path alongside with them. So, so she, after listening to Sheldon's explanations and different comments on this, what's resonating with you from everything that he's been saying? I'm thinking of a, this quote I saw online where it says, if you encounter two people that said they're both having a good day, you wouldn't say that this one is having a better day than this one. Because no, they're both having a good day. Thus, you can't say that someone is having it worse than another one because they are both having the same bad day. They may be different challenges. They may be in different, they have different limitations, different situations, but it is just, they are both having a bad day. And that's how I feel with mental health. Some may have schizophrenia, others may just have ADHD, but to each of them, it is their worst day ever because that is their most overwhelming trial. And that's how I feel with a lot of the YSAs now, like for my parents' generation, like my mom's from Mexico. And so they didn't grow up learning about mental health, but for her generation, they had to learn to... She had to learn to survive in a household that wasn't nice in the beginning. And so that was her difficulty when she was growing up. And so my situation with my mental health is completely different from hers. But to both of us, it, those were our worst times. And as I think about more of what Sheldon has said, I, I think that if you need to find someone you trust to open up to or to learn that you are the person they trust, find the people that you feel most comfortable with in your ward or in your class. Because if you're already comfortable with them, you already trust them or they already trust you, at least to some degree. There is already trust. I know when I had left the hospital I was having a really hard time with my religious beliefs. I did not feel like I could go back to church. I did not want to go back to church. And I had a friend who we hadn't talked in months, but one day he just decided to come and talk with me. And I trusted him because I've known him. And I just shared with him my worries. And he didn't mock me. He didn't judge me. He told me plainly, I don't understand what you're going through but I am going to be here with you. And he helped me to learn about self-love from his personal experiences of life. What he taught me, what he listened and helped me see the light again is what I needed at that moment. And it was because I trusted him. So if you find someone that you can trust a little bit, I can assure you that those you trust and that they trust you back, they'd want to help you. They will not mock you. And if someone does, 
then that person is not worth being friends with. And if they're family members, then it's a little bit more difficult, but you just have to learn to not take it personally because you may not know their life experiences, their views, how they were grown up, what they were taught, which may influence their behavior. But don't, but you can always find someone else that will help you. Just don't stop searching because there is someone around you in that little social bubble you have. Someone there is ready to help you. You just have to say the word. I'm going to say something. So she's saying that's really resonating with me. Um, I'm getting to know my friend Sochi and her gifts and her strengths and who she is. And a word like depression or OCD or anxiety, ones that Sochi's used, that's not who she is. And I think sometimes we can take these broad stroke categories and kind of, oh, that, you know, and kind of this, this is what their experience must look like because they've shared this uh, piece of their life with me. Sochi is, is, is unique. Um, everyone we meet is, is different, even if there, there's, a, there's a word that may be associated with a diagnosis that's not who, who they are. I think that's important for leaders to, uh, to, to not come up with broad stroke solutions for something that uh, they take time to listen and to hear the differences in the story of each person. So something that immediately comes to mind when both of you are sharing your experiences and your different um, viewpoints on this is actually a rather famous quote, but I want to expand it a little bit. So we've always heard comparison is the thief of joy which is very true. We don't want to compare ourselves to other and kind of tally up our own like happiness points, if you would, against someone else. Like that's just a losing game both ways. Um, but I want to expand a little bit saying, but empathy is the root of understanding. And em empathy or trying to see things from another point, another person's point of view has been something really important in my life, at least. And I kind of wanted to ask the question of, how has it affected you personally when someone has reached out to you specifically just for you or just to make sure you're okay? Or how has that affected you? And what are some of the best things that people have done to help you as well? I think with, with empathy, something that doesn't help is when someone portrays the idea of, oh, I know exactly how you feel because they don't. But I'll tell you what does resonate with me. Um, I've not experienced what Sochi's experienced. When she was sharing her beautiful story, um, I could tell there were moments when she was felt fear and was scared. And I felt that. I've, I've been scared before. I, I've worried about what life looked like down the road. So I didn't need to know the uniqueness and the details of the story of, of Sochi's experience. I'll never understand that. But I think the more I can kind of recognize that some of those emotions that we all have different experiences where we're, we're scared and we're afraid and we're angry. Um, I think it helps us have deeper levels of empathy um, because our experience might be different but we can connect pretty quickly with that feeling. 
Um, and, and I think it helps us lead more effectively when, when we can remember times that we were af- afraid or we were scared. We didn't know how to move forward. Um, I think it helps us listen better and give advice a little more cautiously. I struggle being empathetic, being compassionate to even myself. So when I think of how others do it to me, I always think of like, some people just send me a message like, hey, how are you doing today? Or others, they send me just this funny meme. And to me, that's like, oh, they're thinking of me. But then there are other times where, such as my friend, when, when during those nights when I would just cry myself to sleep, I would message him. And he always responded. He didn't understand what was going on, but he was there to listen. He knew what his limits are. But he also knew what I needed and what I need was some, a listening ear. And so I feel like one of the best ways other people have been able to empathize with me is if, when I tell them what I need, what are my needs right now. There are days when I feel extremely lonely for no reason at all. It's just there's those days I feel lonely. And so I'm like, I just reach out to someone's like, hey, I need to talk to someone right now. Are you available? And if they are, great. And if they're not, then that's understandable. I just find someone else. But I feel that along with telling others like what I need, I feel that if I want to be empathetic to others, I have to stop judging them. I have to stop judging them for who they are, for who I think they are. When I was in that hospital, I was the only Latter-day Saint patient there. So I was surrounded by people of many different steps of life. There was a mother who was there. She had just given birth to her second child and she was there for some postpartum medical issues. There was someone else. There were several transgender people that were also struggling with their own issues. But I remember how these people, every time a new patient came to our floor or even when I came to into the unit for the first time they each just like they would say good morning they would say hello they gently remind me like oh you have a note over there by the phone or hey we're gonna go to this therapy session now because they for them judging others was not their first instinct and I feel like those other patients in the hospital they understood that they knew that everyone is imperfect, but every single person deserved kindness. And so that really stuck with me. And so when I, when people reach out to me or when I start talking with someone new, my judgmental thoughts will come first, but then I have to redirect them. And I'm like, no, this is, this is not who they are. We're just going to push those aside and I'm going to see for who they are. Who do they show me who they are? And more often than not, I see their amazing personality. I see their amazing gifts. And when I get to know them as I, as who they are, then I'm able to help them better. Um, Thank you so much for all the things that you've shared. They're very valuable. I feel like there are people out there that maybe are not very familiar with what mental health is. And um, I think this is very valuable information for them. Um, and I love how you, how you've mentioned, um, be there to listen, you know, um, 
be empathetic. And I love the, um, the act thing that you, that you said, ask, care, tell. Um, my question is if a lot of people are struggling with this and they're trying all of these things and none of these things are working, what would you advise them to do? What, what are some options, other options, if they're trying to reach out, if they're trying to talk to people and nothing is working? Well, I think there's a couple of categories here. First, I would say to everyone listening, we all uh, need to be aware of our own mental wellness. And there's things that impact that and we should be aware of it. Our sleep, the things we eat, right? How much we move. Um If we start to recognize that we're talking to people and and we're trying to address something, but it feels unmanaged, it feels that our thoughts are racing and we can't slow them down. We feel like we cannot do some of the normal routines we have done before. Um, that is a time, it's a good indicator to reach out to a professional. Elder Holland has taught us, he said it so well, there should be no more a reservation of, you know, if we had an appendicitis of seeking out medical professionals. So the thing I would say here also is this, in the context of a faith community in our religion, the word and is really important, not or. And here's what I mean. We should seek out a priesthood blessing and all of the resources available to us, including medical care and healthcare professionals, not or. Sometimes it will be conversation and go to the temple more. That, that's where we, we end the, the road. That's the, there are individuals who are trained uh, for this that can support. Um, there, there may be a, a situation where me- medication is recommended. There should be no stigma around that any more so than high blood pressure or, or uh, diabetes and, and insulin that is needed. It is something that we have amazing advances that we should seek out, seek heaven and the best care that we can. Thank you again for everything that you've shared. Um, I personally appreciate and I've learned so much from all the things that you've shared. And um, I'm wondering what other thoughts do you have and would you share with leaders when YSAs are coming to them and asking for help? Well, maybe I could offer kind of a unique uh, perspective here a little bit. So about uh, 10 years ago, I had the great opportunity to serve as a bishop and be a licensed counselor at the same time. I was not the therapist to the members of my ward, and I was not the bishop to my clients. And I think that leaders can um, feel a weight. They have this calling and people are coming and they're asking uh, questions and they have a heart that is so good and they want to help. I think it's really important to recognize that leaders do not have to become professional therapists. In fact, there should be a real separation, even if someone was fully licensed to do that. They need spiritual support. And then leaders need to refer out. And there's resources within the church to help support, to help pay if needed, to get someone the support that they need. Uh, We do this all the time as a church. 
And so I think for leaders, when they feel that weight, that they have to be all things to all people, that's that's uh, too much to ask of anyone, that they should listen, they should offer spiritual support, and they should stay closely connected and refer to professionals who are trained to support in other ways. So true. Uh, maybe if you share some of the experience that you had with your leader, your bishop, or the leaders that helped you, um, and what advice would you give other leaders? I remember during this time, during those months, I was going to my bishop so often. I remember I was asking him for blessings. He told me that he didn't like quite understand all of it. He's like, I've seen my daughter go through some things. And so he knew like a little bit, but he never tried to act as my therapist. He never told me what I needed to do. He never told me like, of like, yeah, just like, oh, you need to do this, this, this. No, he never did that. He was my bishop and he was there to provide me with the spiritual support I needed. And so I feel that leaders should listen. That's what my bishop did. He would listen and he tried to provide like the spiritual takes. Like I remember with my scrupulosity of OCD, it makes me doubt if I am worthy to enter the temple. I struggle going into the temple. I can only go like maybe once a year, maybe. Cause that's how bad it was. And I remember like spiritually, he was like, okay, let's go over the temple interview questions, the temple recommended questions. Remember he would go through that with me. He's like, okay, do you think after answering all those questions that you are worthy to go into the temple? And I was like, yes, but what if? And that's when my OCD kicks in. He's like, if you, if we answered all those questions spiritually and you're worthy, then most likely it is your depression or the OCD that you have that is making you doubt your worth. So he was able to split a line between what he's an expert at versus what he's not. So he's like, I can't tell you if it's your OCD or if it's your depression that's telling you you're unworthy, but I can tell you based on these questions and based on the spirit, I would sign you a temple recommend right now. And so I think that was really good of him to just, he was able to distinguish that very well. Like he knows what his role was, was to be a spiritual leader for me. And that he knew that if he wasn't the right leader for me, he would send me to the next right leader. That would, the next right counselor, the next right doctor or whoever it was, because that was their specialty. Well, his was a spiritual specialty. Mm -hmm. 